electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Dan Nathan, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Guy Adami. Tim will join in just a few. Ahead on fast, Beijing firing back. Yesterday, the U.S. said Chinese companies could face devastating actions if they defy the Russian sanctions. Today, China said it will respond firmly and forcefully if the U.S. does that. How worried do investors need to be about this red-hot rhetoric? Plus... Consumers voting with their feet on the state of retail. Grim new numbers on where we are not shopping. The picture does not look pretty for names like Best Buy, Home Depot, Kohl's, and Bed Bath & Beyond. And the coming Amazon effect on the options market, how the 20-for-1 split could make Amazon an options blockbuster. We start off with a stark warning from one of Europe's biggest manufacturers, the CEO of Volkswagen, saying the impact of the Ukraine war could be even worse on the European economy than the pandemic. The exec telling the FT that the global supply chain disruption, quote, could lead to huge price increases, scarcity of energy and inflation. It could be very risky for the European and German economies. That and a surprise decision by the ECB to start winding down stimulus faster than expected, dealing a big blow to markets on the continent. The German DAX falling nearly 3%. Things were not much better here at home. All three ended the day in the red, though did claw back many of their early losses. The 10-year yields spike above, back above, I should say, 2% for the first time this month. So should investors in the U.S. be worried about contagion from Europe? You know, Guy, a lot of companies are multinational companies. They do a lot of business in Europe. I think the answer is an emphatic yes, Melms. And listen, Germany is the fifth largest economy on the planet, I think. And if you were to aggregate the Eurozone, put them all together, I think that's what aggregate means. Is that yes, correct? You would have the largest economy on the planet by a multiple of what the U.S. is. And you have 450 or so million people, which is obviously a bigger population than we have. So you absolutely have to keep this in mind. And it will have an effect on the United States without question. There will be stocks, I think, that can do well in that environment here at home. But to think that our broader market is impervious, great word, to what's going on in Europe, I think you're foolish to think that. Treasury Secretary Yellen was just on closing bell and, uh, you know, reaffirmed her uh, belief that the economy will have a soft landing, that there will be no recession here in the United States. Is it too early to make that call right Said now? Said by a former Fed Official. Yeah. Yes. Guy All right. Well, listen, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, that's very nice that Nana was um, being optimistic about things, but I'm just saying. Secretary into, Yellen. Secretary Yellen. But I, I guess my, oh, I'm sorry. My point very simply is, is that we are just way too early in this. We don't know what, how this is going to play out. And to your point about U.S. multinationals, here's the thing. The U.S. has come out of the pandemic better, let's say, than most parts of the world. A lot of our multinationals are relying mm-hmm. for other parts of the world to come online. And I don't know what the percentage of S&P 500 earnings or sales come from the U.S., but if you think that we're going to have 8% uh, revenue growth or EPS growth, excuse me, for the S&P 500 this year, given what's going on, as we will definitely be in Q2 uh, before any sort of major de-escalation, that's just not happening. So at 19 times for the S&P 500 with expected 8% growth, take that down maybe to flat if you're being you know, really conservative. The market is still too high. It's still too expensive given the uncertainty. Timothy was raising his hand as a, as a good student student 
would do, Tim, because um, well, well, I, I think I, you have some some notion as to what the percentage of revenues facts. are. Yeah. I, I, I do. I have some facts, and, and uh, it's rare that I have some facts, but today I, 61% of the S&P uh, revenues are domestic, 39% international. I think some of that latest number is skewed a, a bit by COVID supply chain and, and certainly some secular trends to more onshore, but, but uh, there's no question, uh, yes, we, we suffer if Europe suffers. If you look at the dollar, uh, the Dixie is up 10.5%, so the dollar index, which is 60% euro, uh, so, again, weakness in the euro elevates the DXY that much more. Uh, but that's major headwinds for the S&P. And if you think about uh, some of the dynamics that we've seen the last time we really uh, had a focus on the continent, it was back 10 years ago when we had a European banking crisis. I don't think we're going there. Uh, I don't think we're going there, at least in the short term. But, you know, the interesting thing about the, the headlines from Volkswagen today was, you know, BMW reported numbers out today. They had a record two and a half million cars sold last year, even with supply shortages. Uh, they were talking about demand being in line. So, uh, you know, one automaker says one thing. The luxury automaker who has pricing power said something different. And, and uh, I think we all recognize the supply chain dynamics and the commodity importance of Russia, Ukraine. Uh, extended means higher inflation. We've been talking for weeks, but certainly the last two weeks uh, about the, the consumption dynamics and where you're basically burning away uh, the ability to consume with higher prices. And gas prices going into driving season in the U.S., I think, are going to do that. And, and I think people that expect that that's not the case. I do think um, you had a case in terms of the market. <clears throat> Positive today. Semis finished almost 2% off the lows. You had oil prices down. You had the VIX down small, although we're still above 30 for, I think, the eighth straight day, which I think is good for equities because I think things are just oversold. So, Karen, you know, in terms of uh, Tim's point about VW versus BMW, I think that's a very good point, in ter- you know, in that for every positive, there's probably going to be a negative out there. But at the same time, have we... Have we even gone as far in the S&P 500 to discount some of the sales in Europe on the notion that things will be slower? Have we recognized that? I mean, if you take a look at CPI in Italy, it's north of 40 percent. I mean, there's, you know, people are having difficulty around the world that we're complaining about inflation here. It's even worse in some in some pockets of Europe. Right. I don't think we've discounted that nearly enough at all, maybe even just just a hint of it. And if they go into recession, which seems quite likely. It's almost, it seems unavoidable, actually. We haven't really even begun to feel that. So I do think, you know, we're all connected now. I respect Janet Yellen very much, but I don't recall ever hearing a secretary of the Treasury say that we're going to go into recession when we're not already in one. They just would never say that because it's sort of a somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. So the fact that she said we're not, I don't, I don't take much comfort in that. I do think we're better positioned than other countries. Clearly, versus Germany, our, our energy situation is far superior to theirs. That that's, goes without saying. But I do think that we haven't yet felt the ramifications. All that having been said, though, there are parts of the market I think are still high and parts of the market I think are overdone. We always talk about the market as one monolith, but it's not. So uh, to me, I just want to find good, cheap companies that have balance sheets, balance sheets, balance sheets. We're starting to see little bit cracks a little bit. If you look at the LQD, if you look at the HYG, we're starting to see spreads widen out a little. And that's just tip of the iceberg. We haven't really seen a credit crisis or even a credit scare. So that's kind of my one of my many fears.
I think Karen's right to point that out. And we talk about it. Tim talks about this all the time. Credit spreads have been tame until recently. And we have been trying to point out the HYG over the last few weeks, if not longer, and saying this is something you need to keep an eye on. Now, listen, it doesn't really trade. I get it. But it made a 52-week low today. And if you go back over the last 10 years or so and look at this, it's been the precursor or in tandem or behind market moves. And now at 81.5, the HYG was 88 or so a few weeks ago. It is rolling over. It's unavoidable. It is absolutely rolling over. And it means you have to ask yourself, what does it mean for the broader market? I would submit the broader market will follow, and I think it's going to do it shortly. Yeah, and you know what does trade? It's the bank stocks. And did you see Citigroup today? It made a new 52-week low. And, you know, this is a company that's already come out and tried to qualify or quantify at least some of their exposure to Europe. And I think to Tim's point, I and mean, listen, we've all been around markets. I started in the late 90s when we had the Asian crisis and the, and the Russian crisis. And, you know, the, the lack of certainty is the thing that will cause things to overshoot. And I just don't think we're there yet. And I keep harping on this a little bit because I get it. You know, let's keep the S&P intact down 10% on the year. But when you're seeing the sort of volatility that we're seeing in commodities, in FX, in yields, I mean, guy, you and I were just talking about it before we came on the set. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield traded 1.65%, and today it traded 2.01%. There's some, again, some weird stuff going on here, and it's not reflected in the stock market. The thing that, the only (laughs) thing that I know about that I'm actually really capable of talking about on this set, and that's the thing that kind of makes me a bit nervous because I think a lot of investors are lulled by the fact that they had 26% gains in the S&P last year, and they're not looking at all these other components and why the S&P is likely going lower from here. Tim, overall, are you defensive at this point? I mean, do you feel like it's time to be defensive? Because, I mean, Dan was mentioning European ex- Russian exposure banks. How about European exposure banks? I mean, all of these, you know, big financial institutions, they do business in Europe. Forget about Russia exposure. But if Europe is in trouble, then they parts of their portfolios are in trouble, too, theoretically. I I think Europe's had a couple different dynamics over the last week that are interesting. One is that you've actually seen uh, kind of group funding or raising uh, for energy bonds and actually more coordination of European central banks, more, I I think, solidarity. I I think there's some good things happening there. We have seen European banking crisis and we have seen a case where I I think there's massive uh, deficit dynamics across the European continent. I I think if you look at the short end of the curve, that's the most dramatic thing here, folks. If if you look, we, we we are at highs. We're at, I think, back to September 2019 was the last time you saw two-year rates above 170. And and so we're talking about the uh, potential for an inverted yield curve. Uh, The dynamic for European financials is even worse as you see negative interest rates. And they are more negative in Europe than they are anywhere else. And the rally that was so great in Deutsche Bank and UBS and Unicredito and SockGen and BNP, uh, only six to eh, 10 weeks ago is something that's reversed massively, and they will underperform U.S. banks here. Yeah. Meanwhile, Wall Street's biggest bear is now saying it is an easy bet that the S&P falls below 4,000 before year end. That's another 6% drop from here. Let's bring in Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. strategist and chief investment officer for his thoughts on what is to come. Mike, it's always great to get your thoughts. Um, You made that call prior to there being any sort of war on continental Europe. And so do you think, I mean, You haven't put out a note yet, but do you think that the risk is really to the downside of even your target? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, Melissa. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, uh, as you said, I mean, we were already, we came into this year not that optimistic because obviously the Fed was going to have to tighten. 
um, due to the inflationary spike. And of course, uh, growth is slowing, as you as you described. And, you know, this the Russia's invasion of Ukraine only makes those two conditions worse, right? Because you now have more inflation, so they can't really back off. I mean, I would say, you know, one thing about geopolitical events like this, I mean, normally you, know, you want to rush in and maybe buy these events. But at this time, I think it's different because central banks are kind of hamstrung, right? They Normally, they would flood the system with liquidity. They can't do that this time. And it's also going to have a negative impact on growth. So, yeah, I think it's a much easier kind of thing to say now that we're going to trade sub 4,000. It was more difficult back in January to make that call. But I think now it's kind of a fate of a fate accompli. And look, you all are saying it on the show. I mean, you're market veterans. You you see what's going on under the surface, whether it's high yield, the breadth of the market, you know, what the leadership has been. It's been very defensive. So the market's screaming at us, and we just, we're not complete yet. We're, you know, Dan said it right. We're, the market's priced incorrectly at 19 times. You know, we've had an 18 multiple. That was why we were more bearish than most. And I, I would suggest we probably overshoot that sometime this spring. What is the risk, the biggest risk to the markets right now, Mike? What do you think is going to be the number one driver to the downside to your target? Well, clearly, I mean, this you know situation in Russia, Ukraine is front and center. I mean, nobody knows which way this is going to go. We're all hoping that it calms down. Um, I have no insight whether that's going to be the case. I'm hoping, I'm praying for that. Um, so hopefully that fades. And then I think the market will focus on what it always focuses on, which is earnings in the U.S., right? Because look, the U.S. market is somewhat distanced from this situation geographically and financially. Um, there's going to be ramifications um, indirectly. However, you know, I, I think earnings are going to slow anyways. I mean, that's that's been our call. So whether this situation calms down or not, we still have to face, I think, negative earnings revisions across a lot of sectors, particularly consumer, maybe some of the financial system now, given what's going on in in uh, in Europe. And of course, technology, which there's just going to be payback and demand. That's, that's starting to play out. It's been playing out. It's playing out before uh, this invasion. You know, in your notes, Mike, you put boring is beautiful, and there's nothing more boring than railroads, although I happen to love them, by the way. I was a kid. I used to love the model railroad. That's neither here nor there. You look at some of these names. I mean, Union Pacific, last I look, is making an all-time high reasonable valuation and companies that are far more efficient energy-wise than some of these trucking names. I'm not looking to play stock market here, but does that make sense, the railroads in this environment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and look, it, I mean, we call this year the year of the stock picker. And I think I mean, that's what you got to do. You got to find businesses you think are somewhat protected um, from the issues that we're facing who have either pricing power or you know, they don't have issues that other companies are facing. And, and that may be one example. Um, you know, I'm not I don't have any railroad names off the top of my head that I love, but it makes but structurally that makes sense to me. And then, look, this this environment is changing. Right. I mean, obviously, defense stocks, maybe security stocks. Um, I think oil services, which is going to maybe enter a structural bullish period because we underinvested. I mean, there are things that are happening that, from this unfortunate incident, which is going to help some companies. That's what you got to do. You got you to bob and weave here a little bit and find the new opportunities and not rest back. It's going to be the same old type of market because it's not. Mike, great to get your thoughts. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Karen, as you look across your portfolio, are there stocks that you're concerned about in terms of uh, European exposure risk in terms of dollar risk. I mean, you know, Meta, for one, I know that's in your portfolio, but that's got a pretty sizable chunk of its mm-hmm. revenues coming out of Europe. It does, although Meta, you know, I talk about great balance sheets and uh, valuations, and I just think the valuation on Meta, even if you were to discount it, is so far below the market, and yet, you know, I don't think that it should be. So that's not one that I'm overly worried about versus something like a Citibank, which 
you know, I, um, I have some leaps there, so that's sort of an embedded put in that you can't go below this, the strike. But uh, that's, that's one that I'm worried about because of that contagion and because of credit contagion, but also just the, the structure of a bank, right, is inherently levered. That's, that's the way they, they make money. So that would probably be my number one worry. Yeah. Tim? Materials tend to have more exposure to Europe than other mm -hmm. sectors, or it's certainly one of the leaders. But I, I just think, you know, you've seen a bit of a pullback in a handful of material stocks over the last couple of days just because of the parabolic move in their charts or the underlying commodity that's their primary. And I think this is weakness to buy. Again, these are a lot of companies that have figured out how to generate free cash flow. These are a lot of companies that I don't think you're going to see uh, a major pullback in copper prices. I think you, you, you can see a quicker response on ag, especially when you free up uh, a little bit more of the global transportation dynamic here. But I do think you have a case where materials still look interesting. I think defense stocks look very interesting. I think you've got a case where uh, the pullback in the banks is something that I'm not ready to buy, even though I still think banks being priced for major credit crises are, are being overdone. They're pricing in Main Street, and today was another one of those days. It, it was you know, again, it could have been a day where banks would have rallied on a higher rate dynamic and they were telling you a different story. All right. Coming up, stocks in the red as the Russia-Ukraine war rages on and the rhetoric between the U.S. and China heats up. We'll ask noted economist Stephen Roach what can be done to take down the temperature between the Biden administration and Beijing. Plus, we're all over the after-hours action in DocuSign, Oracle, and Ulta. The stocks on the move after reporting results. We've got the details straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on DocuSign. Shares plunging as the company posted very weak guidance, even after beating at the top and the bottom line. So uh, that's very bad. You've already got a beat in your pocket. and You're not raising your guidance guy. The, that's it. The guide was horrible. Yeah. Now, you have to ask yourself, we are now round trip the move from March, April of 2020. We all know what happened then. So the all-time highs of DocuSign were right back down. Actually, on a price to sales, Dan can speak to this, it's not completely ridiculous at these levels. And quite frankly, you're going to flush everybody out. So this is a stock that typically trades 5 million shares a day. I'll tell you right now, it's probably going to trade 45, 50 million shares tomorrow. Everybody's going to capitulate. I think 
and this is a fast fire coming. I can just see it next week at some point. Roll the tape. Roll the tape or whatever the tape. I think you can buy DocuSign tomorrow for a trade. I think this round trip is enough. It was a horrible guide, but it wasn't a horrible quarter. Yeah, and I think Mike Wilson just said it. He said demand payback, right? So these mm. these pandemic winners and people were willing to pay 20 times sales and plus, and now they're down 75%. And we have the playbook for this, right? So it was the dot-com and the post-dot-com thing. And one, I mean, Guy, to your point, if you're nimble, have at it. Buy, buy a stock like that down 20% because sooner or later, there's no one left to sell it, okay? Like, it's just that simple. But I just tell you this, and we've been saying this for weeks and weeks and weeks now, just when you think a stock that's down 60% can't go down much lower, it can continue to go down 20% every month or something like that. We're seeing that. Look at Zoom. It's going to trade 100. It's going to do the same thing. And again, guy, that's trading seven times sales. And that's probably too high for some of these. He, ha- he have added you. No, but usually he does have added people. <laughs> yeah. right. I no, think he was, was specifically, specifically to, to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's the Specific. difference. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let's move on to Oracle. It is dropping as well after reporting earnings, but actually turning around now that the call is underway. Let's get to Julia Borson, who's got the numbers here. Julia. Yeah, quite a turnaround here. The stock was down as much as 6% after hours on fiscal third quarter revenue of $10.5 billion. That was right in line with Wall Street expectations, but the company reported adjusted earnings of $1.13 per share. That was a $0.05 miss from analyst expectations. The company also noted that earnings per share were cut by $0.05 due to the decline in value of two of Oracle's equity investments. But the stock bounced back and it's now down just about 1% on guidance from CEO Safra Katz. She said they plan to push the company's top line growth into double digits next year. And they expect full year growth in gross profit dollars for cloud services and licensed support to be higher than last year. They noted that total revenue for the fiscal fourth quarter is expected to grow between 6 and 8% in constant currency. Oracle also noting that its cloud computing software revenue rose 24% in the quarter from a year older, a year earlier. And it talked about customer gains, a 33% in increase in customers for its fusion software. Now, one quick note at the top of the call, Katz announced that Oracle had suspended all of its business in Russia a week ago. Melissa? All right, Julia, thank you, Julia Borson. That's the danger of trading Oracle before the conference call goes, uh, gets underway. They provide the guidance on the call, Tim, um, as they did here to turn the stock around. Yeah, and I, as, as noted, I, they, they came in in line. Remember, they were 6% last quarter. They're around 7 They're going between 6 and 8 for next quarter. That's what the street expected. So uh, we can split that and call it 7 And And the recurring revenue component of their business, um, cloud software, the other dynamics here are, are what have people – uh, more excited than they have been. Let's, let's not forget, this stock was down uh, about 30% over the last three and a half months into this print. The valuation relative to itself, as we're seeing with just about everybody, not expensive relative to the last couple of years. Uh, to the extent that people want to see uh, a, a more of the recurring revenue, I think that's the multiple that's helping them here. But I, look, that guide was very, very solid, and the stock's been beaten up. The cloud number scared people, which why I think you saw the initial sell-off. But to Tim's point, you're talking about Oracle at these levels, 75 and a half, 76 dollars. 
trading at maybe 13 and a half next time's numbers, cheap to itself historically and obviously cheap to the broader market. This was 105, not that that matters, but it was a $105 stock a couple months ago to Tim's point, and everybody loved what she was doing. Nothing's changed mm-hmm. except the dynamics of the market. I like the stock here. Yeah, and the PE 15 now, forward PE. Well, is. it's funny. So here's the theme. Wells Fargo downgraded Cisco today, and they liked some of their faster-growing competitors um, in cybersecurity, and we know that's a bigger part of Cisco's revenues. It's recurring, and that should um, be a good business. But again, that trades at 15 times, expected to have mid um, to single the high single-digit growth. I mean, there are some cheap stocks that you could probably hang out as long as you don't see huge hits to enterprise spend. But that's the thing. If you think that Europe is going to go into recession, then all of those names are vulnerable and throw in that you know, piece of, you know what, IBM and everything mm. like that. Well, I'm just saying, because, you know, you often will point to it every once in a while, and you think that maybe there's a turnaround, it's a cheap stock, but these guys are all very exposed to some of those, and we haven't had a period we were worried about enterprise spending really since Q1 of 2020. Um, we got another mover for you, Alta Beauty out with earnings after the bell. Let's get to Courtney Reagan for more on that quarter. Court. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, the call just wrapping up here. Alta beat expectations for both earnings and revenue. Despite that Omicron surge and all of us wearing our masks again, full year guidance is mixed with better earnings, but weaker revenue and comparable sales forecasts looking ahead. For the quarter, Alta's comparable sales grew more than 21%. That was above consensus as well, driven by both transactions and average ticket. Comparable store sales grew double digits. E-commerce sales, quote, increased slightly, according to executives on the call. Margins also came in stronger than expected and above last year. Skincare was up double digits, but both prestige and mass makeup sales decelerated from the third quarter. On the call, CEO Dave Kimball said, quote, we remain confident that makeup will return to growth. Services grew 30% over last year, and Ulta also noted that there has not been extraordinary amounts of price increases yet when it regards inflation. Melissa, back over to you. Does that mean that they're able to raise price, that they are going, that that's probably coming? It, possibly. And they talk about how really they have to follow the MSRP, especially when it comes to mm-hmm. a lot of those branded products. And so they kind of tried to push the ball down and say, hey, we just have to give you the price increases that we're told to give. So we'll see what happens. Courtney, thank you. Courtney Reagan. Uh, Karen, that was fourth quarter, as Courtney had noted. So, you know, masks are off now. We have to spend money on makeup or guy does. Right. <laughs> That's right. I, you know, you would think so. Omicron was still in that quarter, as you say. Mm-hmm. So we won't really get the full effects of it, even partially this quarter. But I think that that guidance, I think, was probably a little bit light. I think he's a little bit conservative. I like the margin growth. Uh, I thought they did a great job. So uh, it should be up. They did also announce a pretty reasonable size buyback. I believe it was two billion dollars. And in their guidance, they sort of laid out that they would buy $900 million of stock back. They did in the quarter buy stock at, I think, at about three ninety-nine dollars average or so. Uh, so I like it. I think there's a lot to like. The, the one, I think, bright spot for the U.S. economy is that we haven't fully seen the reopen post-Omicron yet. And I think something like Ulta will really be a beneficiary of that. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. Caught in the crosshairs, China stocks under pressure as geopolitical tensions rage on. So can investors trust the China trade? We're jumping into that one next. Plus, cracks in the consumer? Retail foot traffic dropping as gas prices surge. So is the consumer headed for a breakdown? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. 
Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money. Beijing firing back at the U.S. today, saying it will respond firmly and forcefully to any U.S. sanctions tied to Russia, Ukraine. The move hitting Chinese stocks hard. Crane shares China Internet ETF KWeb finishing down nearly 10 percent. Its worst day since December. For more, let's get to Stephen Roach, the senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute of Global Affairs and a longtime expert on Asia. Um, Stephen, great to have you with us. Great to get your thoughts here. Um, how, do you, how does this play out? Because it seems like the U.S. and China are in, in somewhat of a game of chicken. I put sanctions on you, you put sanctions on me, and I'm going to be tougher than you, and you're going to be tougher than me, et cetera, et cetera. Who has more to lose? Well, we've been seeing this tit for tat now for, for four years with tariffs <laughs> and uh, sanctions on tech companies. But, you know, this is a different story. Uh, you know, China is really... I think now, Melissa, at big risk of being um, tainted by its newfound partnership with Russia. You saw the, you know, the, uh, the the great handshake on the opening day of the Beijing Olympics. They signed a new quote uh, uh, partnership agreement uh, with unlimited potential. So, China is at risk of, of being um, uh, tainted by this and, and judged guilty by association as Russia's only partner. It can't afford to take that risk. It'll, it'll be isolated just like Russia. And you know as well as I do, China needs the world probably more so than Russia. But why would we even hear reports that Chinese oil companies were looking to buy stakes in Russian oil companies? I mean, we're not getting many signs, are we, that China's willing to sort of back away with Russia? Could they possibly step in and broker some sort of a peace agreement? Are they in a position to do that? I think this is their moment to do exactly that. They, you know, they have this long-standing um, sort of sacrosanct uh, value that goes back to the 1950s with Joe and Lai, the so-called five principles of a coexistence, which stresses um, respect for national sovereignty, territorial borders, uh, and non-intervention in other nations' Uh, uh, domestic affairs. They cannot afford to condone what's going on in Ukraine right now. So, you know, this is their moment to step up. And I've written a piece uh, overnight that suggests, you know, a number of things that they should do, uh, including calling a G20 uh, uh, emergency meeting for 
uh, leaders of the, of the 20 leading nations around the world, making a large donation to UNICEF to help the Ukrainian uh, children in distress and stepping up. I mean, they are the world's best on infrastructure. Um, I've uh, urged them to make a, a major contribution to the rebuilding of a war-torn Ukrainian infrastructure. There's a lot they can do if they really want to deliver as a global leader that they've told us they deserve to be uh, thought of. Hey, Stephen, it's Tim Seymour. Thank you for your expertise here. And, and I'll just weigh in and say that I've, I've watched China be addicted to Russia's uh, industrial and energy inputs for years and finance Rosneft's debt, etc. So I, I kind of feel they'll continue to do that. My question is more China's tech sector and your view on Big Brother taking apart and dismantling the Alibabas of the world. And they, China, on some level, has been their own greatest enemy in terms of this influence, in terms of the market cap of their stocks. Can you comment on that? I agree with that, Tim. I mean, uh, the most dynamic sector in the Chinese economy over the last five years has been these uh, large, uh, creative, innovative Internet platform companies. And now under the guise of uh, common prosperity or whatever they want to call it, uh, they are putting enormous pressure on uh, you know, the entrepreneurial activity uh, and the incentives to build new companies that uh, have, yes, created wealth in China as they have for entrepreneurs in other countries. And by going after it, I think they're, they're biting the hand that feeds them. Uh, Stephen, one last question before you go. China seems to be at a crossroads right now. Can you see it taking the path where it sort of sides a little bit more with Russia? It's willing to risk the sanctions of the U.S., knowing that U.S. companies will be hurt just as much um, as its own economy, and that it sees the way Russia has become isolated because of the sanctions that the, that the U.S. and its allies are willing to put on on it, and it doesn't want to be in that position in the future, and so moves to further isolate itself. I don't think China can afford isolation, uh, Melissa. That's the big difference between China and Russia. And if China wants to play it cute and stay with um, uh, its newfound uh, unlimited partner, as it calls Russia. Again, I stress um, it, it will be guilt by association and the world uh, will begin to reject China. It's already had a trade war and a tech war uh, with the U.S., but it, it will find itself uh, isolated from the world. And that would really be a major problem for China and for its um, uh, uh, leader, Xi Jinping, who's looking to get a third term uh, later this year. Stephen, thanks for your thoughts. We appreciate your time. Stephen Roach, Thank you. Uh, by the way, is former chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia, which is one of the reasons why we uh, called him. Karen, how do you how do you assess this China risk when you're taking a look at some of the companies that you have in your portfolio, particularly ones that deal with China, have a presence in China, et cetera? Right. Well, uh, something like a Starbucks, which I don't own anymore, partially because of uh, well, because it was expensive and also China growth, which we talked about last night. I think you brought it up two days ago. Is this really a threat? And I, I think it is. I don't think we're at a time where we could say, oh, no, nothing bad could happen. So something like a Starbucks, something like a McDonald's, which has come down a lot. It's not expensive here, but I think it has excess, gro um, excess China exposure versus some other names. As to something like an Alibaba, um, no shot of getting involved. It's, you know, too, the history is too painful. 
Maybe after the break, we can talk about when my childhood dog died. That would also be equally as painful as my Alibaba experience. But I can't get back in. There's, uh, I'm out. Mr. Roach, listen, he's forgotten more about this than I'll ever know. But what I will say is this. I mean, that handshake came prior to the Olympics or right at the eve of the Olympics, right? We were talking about Russia-Ukraine situation in the fall. And I'm no genius, as you know. So it, has to, it had a dawn on both parties that something was going to happen there. The fact that they put out a 5,400-word document on the back end of it leads me to believe Chinese are in this, and I don't think they're backing away anytime soon. Yeah, I'll just say this. I mean, for the first time in a very long time, parts of the world feel uninvestable. We have lots of strategists who come on and say, oh, you should look overseas. It's much cheaper than here, and they're going to come back here. And I mean, China is uninvestable for a whole host of reasons. If you buy into, like, ESG sort of things, I mean, like, you know, so I, I don't know. It's, it's a really tough spot right here because I don't know about you guys. I don't really want to invest in China right now, and I don't want to invest in, you know, ADRs that are listed right. here in the states and for a whole host of risks you may not want to invest in europe and you may not want you know all these different places but tim does that make does that make the u.s look even better is that some sort of a floor for this stock market the sort of that there is no other alternative kind of notion well especially with our dollar getting stronger and despite the s p's exposure and again if you look at that eem emerging markets um you get 45 percent china you need to invest around it and i think that's the same thing in europe i think there's some great stories but just buying the eu stocks 50 is dangerous here yeah coming up shopping dropping the staggering fall in retail foot traffic and the names hit hardest as consumers start cutting back we got the details next plus burrito bump i thought i was going to say blowout i said bump Chipotle jumping on a new menu ad, so is this stock worth biting into? Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. The economy may be reopening, but malls are still a lot less crowded than they were a year ago. Foot traffic for retailers in the U.S. dropped more than 5.5% last week from a year earlier, according to data from SafeGraph. That's the biggest drop in a year. Take a look at some of the stores most affected, Bed Bath & Beyond, Victoria's Secrets, Home Improvement Stores, Home Depot and Lowe's. Furnishings were there, too, in the top of, you know, least trafficked uh, stores. So how much should we read into this data, Dan? Well, I mean, I think it's incremental, right? I mean, I know Guy says this all the time, is like never bet against the U.S. consumer. And, you know, I mean, but we've never had inflation at levels that we have right now. And all of these forces coming together at once. And, so, and, and you know, we also, a lot of these retailers did very well for a while. So to me, I just think like, I want to keep tracking this sort of data week over week. Yeah. Well, check out Chipotle topping the tape today. A rare green spot in today's sell-off. Share jumping more than 3%. The company announcing Pollo Asado. Yeah as its latest limited time menu item. It's the chain's first new chicken offering in 29 years. That's crazy, 29 years? I mean, what are you gonna do with a new chicken? I mean, McDonald's, by the way, is ruining the day they rid themselves of CMG, number one. We've said uh -huh. that before. Number two, the stock is too cheap. Now, Dan is saying, what are you, nuts? It's trading at 35 times next year's numbers. Yeah, you're right about that, Dan, except that you have 30% EPS growth, and digital continues to kill it. I think it's almost 42% of sales. Margins are improving. They're uniquely positioned, analyst words, not mm -hmm, mine, mm -hmm. to take advantage of what's going on. 
the, I think the average price target, 1800 or so, that's where the stock should be trading. I was on with you and Sarah Eisen on the closing bell, you recall, yes. on February 8th when they reported. And we talked about the burrito blowout. Yes, I said it because you knew I was going to say it then. I'll still say it today. We, Huge CMG We also fan. learned there's a burrito season. No, but there's, there's seasonality no, there's in burrito. Yes, no, there is season straight from the horse's mouth from the CEO of Chipotle. Um, Tim, just quickly, I love how Chipotle can come out what? and just say that they're going to, uh, you know, this new product, which has existed in other restaurants for decades, and bam, the stock goes higher. Bam. <laughs> what, hold on a second. What, what is burrito season? I'm not sure what I have What would you think it would be? What would you think it would be? You would think it would be something cold. I, I, you need so it, warm, oozy I, I, sort of burrito I, yeah, I would to hunker, comfort I would, you. It's spring. I would hunker in with a burrito, um, and so I guess we passed burrito season, guy. Um, and I think it's probably good news for your family. Uh, I do think you got a dynamic here where uh, all the things that we've talked about for some of these other companies, especially in terms of price inputs and, and multiples that are, people are unwilling to pay. Look, as a guy that was unwilling to pay 50 times on CMG, uh, I certainly don't think I want to go and buy it now, even if it's you know, down at 30 times guy forward. I think you've got a case here where we have pulled forward a lot, and I think the, the multiple in the stock never made sense, and I think at some point you pay for it. Up next, Rivian on the move after reporting results. Shares dropping after its report will go inside the numbers. Plus, Amazon surging after its big stock split announcement. And the move could turn the e-commerce giant into an option powerhouse. A little trade school on Amazon just moments away. Fast Money, be right back. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Rivian, the electric automaker, tumbling after its report. The conference call is underway. Let's get to Phil LeBeau with the latest. Phil. Melissa, the shares are tumbling because this was really an unimpressive report when you look at the fourth quarter. A miss on both the top and the bottom line. The company losing uh, $2.43 a share, more than was expected, with revenue coming in shy of expectations, coming in at $54 million. And then when you look at the numbers within the numbers, yes, the number of reservations has increased from 71,000 up to 83,000. But in terms of what they produced in the fourth quarter, it was maybe a little bit light of what they had given in previous guidance, producing just over 1,000 vehicles, uh, 920 deliveries. And then there's the guidance for 2022, and this is really where the stock got hit, producing 25,000 vehicles, even though they say they have the capacity this year to build 50,000. Why? Supply chain constraints, specifically with semiconductors, wiring harnesses, electronics. They're talking about that right now in the call. And a loss of $4.75 billion. Here's CEO R.J. Scaringe during the conference call talking about the supply chain. The challenges our suppliers are facing vary and include company-specific production issues, COVID-related delays, and semiconductor allocations. We're working closely with any of these constrained suppliers to identify component challenges early so that we can support the supplier ramp and develop alternative solutions if needed. The CapEx for this year will come in at $2.6 billion, and the company is uh, ending the year, or ended the year, I should say, with $18.4 billion. Two final notes, Melissa. The first one, they will be naming a COO next week. And the second one, remember the whole pricing snafu, if you will, Mm -hmm. last week? When they said, hey, we're going to raise the prices 17 to 20 percent, they did see cancellations. They're not giving a number, but of the people who canceled after that was uh, announced, half of them then came back 
and reinstate it. And they now say that the level of reservations, the pace of reservations, is the same as what it had been in the past. So they do not believe that will have a long-term impact. They've got bigger fish to fry than this reservation snafu thing. Um, Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau. Dan Nathan, what's what's up with this stock? It came out of the gate as the hottest thing around and has just disappointed at many, many turns at this point. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously a pretty immature, inexperienced uh, management team, and they obviously have tons of competition coming online, so supply chains are one of the biggest issues. I mean, we know that Tesla made and shipped a million cars last year, and they're getting good at it or getting better at it than from these periods. So, And then we know that the Germans are trying to secure all the same parts and everything like that. The Detroit is trying to do that, the Chinese. So uh, they're going to have a tough road to hoe. And I'll just say one other thing, with this stock down 180% from the highs post-IPO, this is how bull markets end, people. At the same time, I'm going to venture to say this. They name a COO next week. It's somebody with experience. It's somebody from Amazon. It's somebody. It's some name, and the stock could snap higher, guy. Just on a short covering short, bounce. Yeah. With no, no. I mean, the stock could go up 30 percent and still be in this downtrend that we've talked yeah. about. I mean, it made no sense at 180. Probably doesn't make a lot of sense at 50. And my sense is it will start to make um, valuation sense in the mid-20s. I think it's going there. But to your point, Melms, you could see a mind-ripping, mind-numbing rally on the back of that next week. Coming up, an amazon size impact on options. How the e-commerce giant's announced split could turn it into an options blockbuster. An OA explainer right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out Amazon bucking the tech trend, surging 6% following its announced 20-for-1 stock split. Option traders could be among the biggest winners on this move. Let's get to Mike Coe to break down this action. Professor Coe, how big of a deal is this? Yeah, so uh, first of all, let's just take a look at what Amazon did today. It traded a little over two times its average daily options volume, and what that turns into is slightly over 400,000 contracts. But of course, If the stock splits, then the options are going to need to split with it. So just to uh, think about it this way, uh, essentially, if you're going to have a 20 for one stock split, then you're going to need to represent at least 20 times as many options contracts as well. And what you would do is you would take the strike price and just like the share price, that is going to be divided by this split. So just as a by way of example, let's assume that you owned a June 3000 call, which is about a $200 option. Now you're going to own 20 of the June 150 calls, and that's going to be approximately a $10 option. But here's something else to consider. The most active options contract today were the options on SPY, the ETF, and that traded about 7 million contracts. But multiply 400,000 by 20, what do you get? Over 8 million contracts. So this would actually have been the busiest option, option traded in the U.S. markets today. Now, I will leave you with one final point. When Apple did their split, it became the most active. But after a while, that drifted down a little bit because some of the people trading options were looking for a cheaper way to trade the stock. Thank you, Mike. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Tim. Precious metals, AMARK, A-M-R-K. Karen. Yeah, if we get a bad tape and Ulta opens down, I would buy it. Dan. Yeah, I'd take profits and guys XL. Guy. Yeah, guys XL. Oracle sister. All right, don't go anywhere. We got a CNBC special tonight, so stay tuned on the tech trade. Stay tuned. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.